Good morning. Good to be here with you today. We are continuing on in our series uh, on the Psalms. And I wanted to put up the title of this graphic. We haven't met yet. My name is Kyle. You can go to the next one. The title of this message is called We Have Done Wrong, which just sounds super encouraging, doesn't it? In fact, if you have come here with a boyfriend, I don't do this very much. I don't do this often where I ask the audience to do work to raise your hand. <clears throat> but raise your hand if the following is true. You came here with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a spouse who can never admit that they're wrong. Can you do that for me real quick? None of you took the bait. Well done. Well done. Some of you are like, yep, proudly. He needs to hear this. She needs to hear this. Don't do that. I'm not trying to cry, cause marital strife. <clears throat> but it is, it is hard to admit when they're wrong. It is hard to admit when you've made a wrong choice. It is hard to admit when you have wronged someone else. And what I wanted to do is I was you know, doing research for this message. I was reading this psalm. Is I was going to be like, man, I, I have taught several messages in this series that kind of feel like downers. And there are some times where you kind of need uh, to hear some things that are really tough. You know, people aren't really good anymore at having tough conversations. Most of us want to feel good. We do not want to feel bad. Or we're really good at making ourselves feel bad. And so we don't want someone else to add to that pile. You know, today we were in our production meeting. We were down here before you guys get here. We talk about things, you know, music and song choices and stuff like that. And we were kind of just joking upon how some people are like, I'm already great and telling myself how bad I am. Thanks for joining the party. I'm going to call my therapist right after this. I appreciate that. So we're keeping therapists everywhere employed. But uh, today's going to be kind of kind of weird in terms of like, this sounds like from the title and from some of the time I'm going to talk today, that it's not going to be encouraging. But actually, it's actually going to be a very encouraging message in kind of a peculiar way. And we're going to get to that a little bit at the end. So this message is entitled, We Have Done Wrong. And if you've been here with us, we are on this series in the Psalms. And every message title is taken from a line in the Psalms that I believe tells you about what the Psalm is about. So kind of to give the movie away here, this is about people doing something wrong. Now to give you a little bit of a refresher, and the reason I'm doing this is because I want to make sure if you've come here for the first time, if you joined us late in this series, um, why would you do a series on the Psalms and why is it important? Well, the, the book of Psalms is actually, the title of it actually means praise songs. It's what it meant in the original language. And then from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew, yeah, I won't bore you with all that stuff, but it basically suggests that Psalms is a title given about praise. So the unique thing about Psalms is even even in a, in a message that has the title of We Have Done Wrong, is almost every psalm, in fact, I think every psalm, praises God in some way, shape, or form. Now, sometimes the psalms are brutal, meaning that people are like, hey, if you could kill my enemies and lay their blood at my feet, and you're like, all right, that, I'm not starting my morning with that one, right? And there are other ones where they're like, God, you're so awesome, the lilies of the field are great and everything, and you're like, this is cool. All of them end or begin with praise. It does not matter what the subject matter is. And part of the reason is that is they, they try to help enigmatically talk about what the relationship with God is supposed to be like, hopefully one of praise. But if you're just joining us, I wanted to talk a little bit about the importance of prayer before you actually say anything. So before you pray in public, before you go to your room, before you go to your place, your spot, maybe somewhere in nature, we wanted to try to recap what we said at the beginning of this series because your motivation, your desire for before you say anything in prayer probably is more important than the words that you say. So this is just going to be a recap real quick. 
So we talked about two ways of thinking. Two ways of thinking when it comes to pray. Now, praying often seems like a spiritual thing, like why do you need to think about it? But it's actually really, really pivotal and important to understand. I mean, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. There are all sorts of things in the Bible about how you should pray, how you shouldn't, what you should say, and what you shouldn't. And I just kind of synthesize this to kind of two major things. The first one is called a business arrangement. And a business arrangement focuses on the exchange. Now, if you've heard this before, you know, this is just a good reminder to you as you pray or if you pray uh, this weekend, is that it's a a business relationship. If you focus on your prayer life as a business arrangement between you and God, you always focus on the exchange. Does he give me what I asked for? Did he not give me what I asked for? Is he taking his time giving me what I desire and ask for? And if you focus on the exchange, here's what it's about. This is about what you get and what you don't get. And this is a very dangerous way of praying. Now, I'm going to be honest. Most people probably don't go, not everyone, most people probably don't go into prayer going, well, if he doesn't give me what I want, I want nothing to do with him. But that does happen. It does happen. Sometimes it happens subconsciously. Sometimes the only reason we go into prayer is because we have a need, a felt need, a legitimate need. And we go, we're going we're gonna to go to the one who has the power beyond my own ability. And so we're going to ask him, or I'm going to ask him to do something for me, to give me something, and I am focusing on the exchange. And sometimes we do that because we have a desperate need, and we want to get something from him. But oftentimes what happens is, you know, one of two bad things can happen. You get what you want, so you go back, and you ask for another thing that you want. Or you get what you want, and that's all you needed. You never go back to praying. Hey, thank you for listening this one time. I appreciate it. So we don't want you to focus on that. It's something we're all working on personally. Um, So if you're not a good prayer, I'm not even sure what that means, but if you consider yourself, I could work on my prayer life, this may be the first way to start working on your prayer life. So the second, and we think it's the superior way to come to a prayer, and we learned this from Jesus, is this. It's a family arrangement, which focuses on the relationship. So when Jesus has his uh, disciples and they say, hey, Jesus, when you pray, it seems like you do it better than we do. Um, can you teach us how? And he, he changed the relationship and the distance between people and God. In fact, you know, Hebrew people, you know, the Jews would often not say God's name. They had a temple built where there was a curtain and they would stay outside. They would tie a rope around the priest's waists. So when he goes in to give uh, worship to God, if he said something bad, they think God would zap and they'd have to pull his dead body out. Isn't the Bible cool? Super cool. So they had this clear distance between them and God. They wouldn't even say his name. And Jesus kind of says, hey, that's great that you want to revere God. You should keep that. But what you should add is that God is your father. In fact, it's one of the reasons that Jesus was killed is that he called God his own father. And that that created a relationship that the, the, the Jewish religious people were not comfortable with. You cannot call God your father. He said, not only can I, I am instructing you to do the same. You should see God, not as a business partner or as this, you know, kind of wispy, sort of sentient being out there. You should see him as your heavenly father because your heavenly father wants to take care of you and love you. And so when you, when you focus on this, here's what you, we think about instead. It's about what you invest or what you don't invest. Vastly different when it comes to your prayer life. It's not about you getting something. It's about you and I investing in a relationship, investing in a relationship. So 
with that kind of recap, as we look, what kind of investment? We're going to talk about a specific type of investment. I'm going to talk about your relationships with people and your relationship with God in just a minute. But we're going to get there by Psalm 106. Psalm 106. We're almost to the end of the Psalms. Next week, we're going to end our series in the Psalms. It's been seven weeks. There's 150 or so Psalms, and we've only covered seven of them. So there's a lot more to be read. But what type of investment we're going to talk about today? We're going to try to get there by asking this major question. It's this. Do I reflect on and repent of things that I have done wrong? Do I reflect on and repent of things that I have done wrong? So I want to give you kind of a couple of examples or the why this thinking is important. Now, some of you have been wronged. You've been harmed physically, sexually, emotionally, financially, relationally, to the effect that you hope that someday someone would hear a message like this or that God would speak to them and he would soften their heart to the degree that they would come up to you someday and they would reflect upon what they have done and they would repent and they would come to you and they would be so sorry. But you can't control what other people do. The only thing you can do is work on you in this. That's the only control that you have. I can't help you when other people have wronged you. All you can do is respond. It's the only thing I can try to help you with. Or to be more accurately, as I'm teaching you what Scripture has to say about this. So we can only focus on you. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to focus on how you can reflect and repent of things that you've done wrong. And I want to give a few uh, kind of reasons that this is important to think about. So imagine any relationship that you have in your entire life, okay? Imagine a particularly challenging one. You know, you have harmed someone in your life, whether you have intended to or not. Some of it's just accidentally. You said, I do this all the time. I step in things. Like I was out to dinner the other night and I was talking uh, to someone and I had commented. I was like, hey, you're painting your house. And I did not know that it was marital strife there about the painting of the house. And I totally stepped in something. And I do this all the time where I just have an offhanded comment. I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And it's like a deep wound. And I unintentionally hurt people all the time. And then there are some times when I'm just not at my best and I say something because I'm hurt or I'm not in my right frame of mind and I harm someone with my words or my actions. You probably do this as well. And sometimes you, you can be harmed or harm a complete stranger by saying something harsh to them. I mean, almost no one would disagree with this statement. You are going to harm someone in your life, whether unintentionally or intentionally. Now, if you are a Christian, your relationship with God, you understand this motive. Because as a Christian, one of the foundations of whether or not you can have a relationship with God is the admission that you have harmed your relationship with God. That God hasn't separated himself from you. You have pushed him away. It's one of the most offensive parts about being a Christian is to get up the courage to say to God, I have wronged you. And if you're like... Uh, been a Christian for a little while, maybe you started coming back to church, or maybe you're from a different religion, or maybe you're Catholic, and maybe this Protestant version and way of thinking about your relationship with God, that as you read scripture, this is something new for you, that maybe you're discovering along the way, that you're like, man, I have a relationship with God, and I've discovered that some of the things that I am doing, I am no longer allowed to do. They are harmful to my relationship with God, and you're working on that. And then maybe the third category of people, you are not a Christian yet, and you're kind of kicking the tires in this whole church and Jesus thing, and you're kind of like, is that part of the gig? Like, in order for me to become a Christian and to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that's part of the deal? 
And that may be a barrier for you. All of those are challenging. But here's my point behind all this. Whether it's a person or whether it's God, you know, the fact and the way that you respond to someone after you've harmed them may be more important than whether or not you've harmed them in the first place. Because we've already come to the conclusion you're going to do it. You're going to harm someone else. So it's, it's less important that you try to minimize your harm to someone else. If you can do it, you should. But when you and someone else and when you and God know that you have harmed their relationship, your response is more important than anything else. It tells someone else if you truly love them. Because if you truly love them, you don't want to hurt them. You don't want them to stay hurt. But the opposite is also true. If you harm someone and you push it under the rug, metaphorically, not actually, if you do nothing to try to reconcile their relationship, if there is no admission of guilt, you're not going to have a relationship for very long. And you know this. You know this. So, I told you it'd be encouraging today. Super encouraging, right? So, we're going to look at Psalm 106. This will be an encouraging message. I promise that. But I, I want to start off with the beginning and the end of Psalm 106 because it's a little deceiving uh, on the front end. So, Psalm 106 begins this. It says, Hallelujah! Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. You're like, all right, we're off to a good start. This is happy-go-lucky. I'm going to start my day off right. Who can declare the Lord's mighty acts and proclaim all the praise to Him? How happy are those who uphold justice and practice righteousness in all times. And you're like, man, this is going to be like the most joyous psalm ever. It starts with hallelujah. And it ends this way in the 48th verse of this psalm, because there's a bunch of verses here. It says this, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. And you're like, oh, oh, this is going to be great. And then you read all the middle parts and you realize that's not where it's going at all. But the importance of this is, the reason I bring up the first and the last, is that maybe in our prayer life we can learn something from the Psalms. First part always starts with praise. We get all our stuff out in the middle. And at the end, we end with praise. It does not matter what we've asked for. It doesn't matter what our attitude is. It doesn't matter how we feel. Maybe we should begin and end with praise. So after the praise stuff, the psalmists starts to take kind of a downward turn. Here's what he says. Both we and our ancestors have sinned. And this is where I got the title for this message. We have done wrong. We've acted wickedly. Now imagine for a second, you did this. You said, okay, you're right. I did some bad stuff. Now imagine you wrote all of those things down and handed them out to your friends. Would you do that? No. The guts of this psalmist to not only take that upon themselves to say, I'm going to put on display all the things that I have done wrong, but all the things our people have done, write them in a book because the Holy Spirit, we believe, has asked them to do that and give them the words to do so. And for 2,000 years, or it's actually more because it's in the Old Testament, thousands of years, people have read the bad things that this people group has done. You know how embarrassing that would be? We don't even like to put bad pictures of ourselves on social media. Like, we're just like, everything's going to be great. You know, you see the family picture, everyone's smiling off camera. They're beating the crap out of each other. Like, don't tell me that's not your family. If it is, you guys are liars. Or I, I want to know how you do it because my kids do that. 
both of we have sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. And then they go on to talk about these things. It says, our ancestors in Egypt, and they're going back to a story about Moses and, you know, taking his people through away from Egypt. They did not grasp the significance of your wondrous works. And the interesting thing about this psalm is it's not just personal admission, it's a collective one. And I think part of the reason that is so important is that when you have wronged someone, just to bring it back to you and I for a second, it never just affects one person. It affects your family, it affects your friends. Sin is never relegated to you. It always affects others, always. There's no way to hide from the effects that when we have wronged someone else, it trickles down to the people we know and love and care about. So the psalmist is kind of essentially saying thing that our ancestors in Egypt goes way back because right now they're in the land um, that God has given them. And this is going back historically. Our ancestors did not grasp the significance of your works or remember your many acts of faithful love. I mean, if we go nowhere else in the psalm, this might be enough to reflect on. Have you ever forgotten God's wonderful, faithful love to you? Have you missed it in times of hardship? Or have you jettisoned it because things were just too difficult? Have you sometimes not grasped the significance of the people and the circumstances that God has put in your life to a degree where you didn't realize how they changed the course of your life? I mean, I can say yes to that one. So he says, our ancestors didn't grasp the significance of what God was doing through them. They forgot his faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea. And he's kind of painting a picture. God brings them out to this water. They're like, great. He brought us out here to die. The Egyptians are coming back. We can hear their horses. Dust is being kicked up in the air. We can see the glint off of their helmets and their swords. And here we are with women and children and stuff. We got no shot. They rebelled by the sea. Well, let's just go back. Let's surrender. Let's tell them we were wrong. You know, and yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his power known. And he rebuked, God rebuked the Red Sea. And you know, if you've ever seen any of the movies and Disney did a great job with this one, is that like they, they he parted the sea, he, he made a wall of water and people walked through it. And he took them in the depths through the desert. He saved them from the power of the adversary, Pharaoh and his army. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And water covered their foes. Not only did he just rescue them, as they looked back, they got to watch the Egyptians sink. Their masters, because they were slaves in Egypt, they watched the glint of their armor fall to the depths of the sea. You know, God left no questioning as to whether he could rescue them. How much does it take for God to actually do for us when we'll finally wake up and go, yeah, only you could do that? I mean, think about it. God parted a sea. Do you know what would happen today? I'll tell you what would happen. It's not as good as you think. If God did this today, it would be on TikTok for about five minutes, and then we would find a funny cat video or something to move on to, and it would be explained away, and we would forget, even if we had video knowledge of God doing a wondrous work in the world because we are so distracted by everything else. But God let them know. He's like, not only am I going to get you out of this position, I am going to make sure your enemies can never follow you. You will never have to look over your shoulder because they're toast. Then they believed his promise, and they sang his praise. Sweet. 
happy ending. Ah, can we go to the next verse? Not really so much. Then they soon forgot his works and would not wait for his counsel. You're like, oh, come on. Like, and we always think that like, oh, I would never do that. I would never like forget what he has done. And then we realize we do the same thing. Have you ever done this? Again, just to make it personal for a second. God may not have parted a Red Sea, and I'm not going to use that as a metaphor because I think that's weird, but there are people in pivotal circumstances and things that you look at as you reflect on your life and you go, there's no way a human being did any of that work. It had to have been God. You know, I hear conversations all the time about people saying, I needed this exact sum of money, and it came in the mail anonymously to me. You know, I, I don't think my kid would have been born. They were dead. And then miraculously, they came back. I needed a person in my life, and they just appeared. I had this sickness and this illness, and the doctor said, hey, you got six weeks. And I was healed. I mean, there's so many things in the world that you kind of look back and you go, only God could have done that. What about the second part of the sentence? For, uh, waited for his counsel. I am not a patient man most of the time. When I am hungry, I will look at the line for tacos, and if there are two people in it, I'll just convince myself I'm not hungry anymore. I'm, like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I'm not super patient by some things, but this is not a good thing for us to wait. And maybe that's what prayer does more than anything else. It causes us to wait on God's timing and in his ways. And then the psalmist continues on, and it's like a greatest hits of badness. It's so bad. And I'm going to just like, because there are 48 verses, I didn't have time to go over all of them with you. I wanted to kind of squash them into some really heartbreaking things that they did. So they, the people, they did this. They were envious of Moses. Moses had this relationship with God. Some of his leaders didn't like it. They made a golden calf and worshipped the cast metal image. It wasn't enough that God appeared as a, a pillar of fire and smoke, took them to the Dead Sea, got rid of their enemies, fed them manna and water and, and quail in the desert, took them to a land and made them be able to get uh, this, this plot of land for themselves. They had to worship something else. They despised the pleasant land, or they forgot God their Savior. They despised the pleasant land and didn't believe in his promise. They grumbled in their tents. I've done this, depending on your camping uh, situation. <laughs> Aligned themselves with Baal and Peor and offered sacrifices to lifeless gods. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. Now, anytime you ever think you're a bad parent, read this verse. You're not this bad, okay? You're doing all right. You may want this at some point, but you're not doing it, okay? But they literally, you know, joking aside, they believed that some of these rival gods that didn't even exist they would sacrifice their own kids to improve their circumstances. Just evil at the highest level. They defiled themselves by, uh, by their actions and prostituted themselves by their deeds. I mean, this list is terrible. This list is terrible for anybody. This list is terrible, especially for a group of people that God himself led out of slavery into a promised land, was with them every sense of the way, gave them what they needed. They were a bunch of whiners a lot of the times. And every time he came back, he said, I will rescue you. And that's kind of the turn that the psalmist now takes. It says this, he, God, rescued them many times. Now, just be honest for a second. Would you rescue people like that? I'd be like, no. I'm sending the snakes, you're all getting bit, and you're all dying. That's what's happening. But he rescued them many times. But they continued to rebel deliberately and were beaten down by other iniquity. But again, this is just the heart of the Father of the universe. He still heard their cry. 
You know what I would hear? Crying. That's it. He heard their cry. He took note of their distress, which was self-inflicted. He remembered his covenant with them. He bound himself to this people. He said, oh my gosh, you guys are terrible to each other. You're terrible to me. But I made a commitment to you that is not based on your character or your conduct, but mine. And he relented according to the abundance of his faithful love. You read the story and you're like, what? You know, if, if stuff like this in the Bible doesn't make you want to lean in to becoming a better Christian or to becoming a Christian in the first place, or if it doesn't break your heart to the point that, man, that God is worth giving my life to, I'm not sure what is. So they, they have done things that are wrong. They've admitted it. So I want to make this a little personal, maybe for you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands again. Don't worry about that. But I want to talk about three possibilities, three possibilities when you're caught doing something wrong. And I'm going to emphasize the caught part because God always catches you. Sorry to say that. It's not like he's like, dang it, I was in bed. I totally missed what you did. Like he sees all the time. He doesn't sleep. He sees all backwards and forwards and present. He sees all of eternity, the beginning of everything and the end of everything. There's nothing to hide from him. So there are three options that God has. It's just my way of talking about it. And we're just going to talk about it with you. The first one is justice. You get what you deserve. We understand this one perfectly. In fact, part of the Old Testament law was an eye for an eye. You harm someone else, it might cost you your life, or it might cost you something equivalent to that person's life. This is maybe one of our favorites. This is one of the things that we like to deal with people the most favorably in, meaning we probably pick this one. If we had three cards in our pocket about how to deal with people, this one would be the top one. We would say, you get what you deserve. You get what you pay for. We have all these phrases. You get what you deserve. You get what you pay for. Like, we want it to be even and fair. We believe that people who do harm to others deserve to get harm to do them. We believe that people that take away the freedom of others, their freedom should be taken away. We the people who kill someone, their life should be taken. It's a very easy way of speaking about morality and ethics in the world. It makes sense to almost every culture. And then the Old Testament would say that there's a better rule out there. You should treat people how you want to be treated, not just how they treat you. So option number one is justice. So let's say you have harmed someone else. You have harmed God. Now, for some of us, that one makes total sense. Like, I have hurt them. I deserve to be hurt. I deserve to be hurt myself. And some of us can't can't get past the part and we become martyrs. Or maybe we just think, I deserve this. Because I've hurt them so bad, I want you to hurt me back. It's not a healthy way to think. So justice is the first one. The second one is mercy. Mercy is this. It's not getting what you deserve. And this one is very helpful to a relationship. It's it's someone saying, you should get this. It's a judge going, this is the sentence you should get. You should get 20 years in prison for what you did. I'm going to give you five. Because I believe in you as a person, you have the capacity to change. Don't make me regret being merciful. To you. And some of us have been shown mercy in our relationships with God and our relationships with people that someone has withheld the right for you to get what you deserve. And it's oh so helpful, but it's not the most helpful. 
The third one is the most helpful. Third one is this. It's getting something good that you don't deserve. This is the one that God does with us. You know, he does all three. There are times when he says, my justice is going to rule the day. Because there's still evil in the world. We want justice for evil. We want mercy at times when we have done something and we know that punishment is warranted between us and someone else. But you know the one we want more than anything else and the one we don't deserve is grace. It's giving something good when you don't deserve it. I mean, if you had this in a relational capacity, like if you harmed someone and not only did they say, I'm not going to harm you back, I'm not just going to forgive you, I want to invest more in this relationship. I want to see you more often. I want to spend more time with you. I want to tell you how much that I love you. I don't want this to just part ways because we've reconciled. I want to invest more into your life and this relationship. You know how powerful that is? I mean, that's essentially what God has done with his people. And I think it's one of the reasons, at least for me, that I became a Christian. I was like, gosh, if I read the Bible, I realize I'm pretty bad. And that would be a, without using cuss words, that's a, that's a nice way of saying it, you know? And, and I would say that, like, the thing that he at least captured, helped capture my heart, and maybe it helps capture yours, is the fact that not only God said, hey, we're good, you can go on with your life. He goes, nah, you're not good. Sorry to bring that up again. But I want to be invested in your life. I want to make sure that you know that I love you so much, that despite you being bad or harming our relationship, I want to be closer to you than ever. It's a compelling reason to believe in Jesus. So we started this off by talking about reflection and repentance. We kind of done a little bit of the reflection part. And with the time I have left, I want to talk about how do you repent? It's sometimes a very complicated thing. People are like, how do I do this? So you get to a place where you go, okay, you've convinced me. I have harmed my relationship or done wrong in my relationship with other people. And probably more important than anything else, I have done my, uh, something wrong in my relationship with God. And when Jesus came on the scene, one of the first things he said when he was asked, or at least when he was broadcasting what his mission was about, he said, I came to call and save the lost and lead people to repentance. It's part of his mission. So it's something we have to do. So how do you do it? And this is applicable whether or not you are a Christian for a long time. You're just getting into Christianity and figuring what, it out, what, it, what it's about. Or you go, how do I get in? How do I have this relationship with God? You have to repent. You cannot have a relationship with God or, in my opinion, with people unless you repent. So how do you do that? I'm going to give you three steps. The first one is heartfelt sorrow. A godly sorrow or regret that we have harmed our relationship with God and others through sin. Has anyone ever apologized to you and you just can see in their eyes that they don't mean any of it? How helpful is that? You hate their guts more, don't you? You're just like, that's terrible. Like, you can't even look me in the eye and feel bad. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'm an analytical, philosophical, probably like low emotional intelligence person. And even I can spot when people don't do this well. And I have to really do a good job of not faking it, but making sure I understand the power of an emotional response in terms of sorrow that I've hurt someone else. This is so important. You can't go any farther if you don't do this. You can't come to someone and say, 
hey, sorry I hurt you so bad. We're good now, right? You want to play golf? No, that doesn't work. Like, you have to come, and I'm not saying you should not fake it. Don't hear me say that. But the genuineness of sorrow must be felt by the other person. I feel like, and this is just my opinion, I feel like it's a requirement for genuine repentance. The Bible says godly sorrow leads to godly repentance. And here's why this is key. If you don't feel bad about it, you'll do it again. And I'll do it again. So the first one, how do you repent heartfelt sorrow? Step two, genuine confession. And this is just, you know, my definition of it. Agreement with God on what is right and what we have done wrong. It's not based on your standards. It's based on God's standards. This is so important because you and I can talk ourselves into making anything not seem as bad. Yeah, I pushed him in the mud, but now I got a bath. That's not bad, you know? You know, we can talk ourselves into saying, that's not so bad. That was the problem with the religion of their days. They explained everything away. To give one example, Jesus said, you know, the Sabbath was created for you, not the other way around. You were not created for the Sabbath. You are doing harm to people. This is paraphrasing Jesus' conversation with some religious people. He said, you know, if your neighbor broke their leg or their donkey broke their leg on the Sabbath, you wouldn't help them out because you have justified not doing good in order to uphold your law. And instead, you've lost the spirit of generosity and compassion for the people. They did it all the time. So a genuine agreement. I actually think it's really important to look people in the eye. And I know you can't look God in the eye, but maybe in your prayer time. Genuine confession. I have done this. Be specific. Don't say, I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry when we were in the car, I lost my temper. I said things to you I wish I could take back. I have harmed you because for years I didn't want to have anything to do with you. And I pushed you away. And I'm sorry. You need genuine confession. Number three, a changed action. It means nothing if you don't change. So changed action is this. Repentance actually just means to turn the other way, to turn away from something. So changed action is this, a change in behavior that begins with a change in your mind. If you agree with God that what you do is wrong and you have a genuine, hardly felt sorrow which engages your emotion, those two things together should motivate you to turn away from what you have been doing. It may not be all at once. It may take some time. It may take some practice. It may take continued forgiveness on behalf of the other person. But you got to change because sorry only lasts so long. Words are cheap when they're not followed by actions. But words are incredibly powerful when you as a person have done this before. Like, just to give you like a, a general example, if you tell someone you are sorry and, and you look them in the eye and tell them how you and confess what you have done wrong and then... You change your action, and they see that over a period of time. And then you do something else wrong. You're more believable next time. You go, I'm sorry I did this other thing too. I'm sorry I hurt you in this way. And my desire is to change my action. You are more believable in that sense because you've already done it once. 
So here's some next steps. Here's some ways to do this today. We kind of talk about this. The first one, feel sorry, think sorry, act sorry. A lot of sorry here, right? Feel sorry, think sorry, act sorry. And again, you cannot, you cannot fake this. You cannot fake this. Confess to God and maybe someone else. You have to be careful with this one. I wish I could say that you can trust anyone, including Christians, about something you have done wrong to someone else. And the truth is you can't. Not everyone can handle this information. I'll give you a generic but actual real-world example. As a pastor, part of the job hazard of pastors and people who are on a counseling staff that aren't pastors and they're volunteers, they get told and we get told things that if other people knew those things about that person, they would treat them differently. I can't tell you more than a few times I have had someone come up to me, usually a man, who has come up and said, I have cheated on my spouse and I need help. And I can see the desperation in their eyes. They know they did it wrong. They know they, did, they harmed a person. They know they love the person they care about so much. No one knows. Can you imagine trusting that information to the wrong person? It gets out and it harms. They can't even get to the repentance process because it blows up around them. So you have to be careful of who you tell. I'm not saying all people are bad. I'm just saying be choosy with who you talk with. Number three, write down and begin a new action. This is just simple statistics. You're more likely to do something different if you write it down. I can't remember what the statistic is exactly, but I know it's better than zero. So... Write down and begin a new action. There's something powerful when you write something down. You get to look at it. You say it. Maybe you put it somewhere where you can see it all the time. Maybe it's on your phone. I take notes on my phone because it's always with me, and I do that. You know, I, I told you this, this message would be encouraging, even though it's been hard so far. So here's hopefully the encouraging part. What would you give if someone did this for you? Probably anything. Because again, we've already made the, the two conclusory statements. You're going to harm someone and you've been harmed. What would you do and what would you give if someone, and you probably can see their face and see them in your mind, what would you give if someone did this for you? They came up to you and said, I'm so sorry for I've hurt you. Over the years or during this time, I can never take back what I have done. But what I can do going forward is I can tell you that I acknowledge that what I did to you was wrong. I hurt you so badly. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit to you from now on to not only not to do that, but to do something great for you in order to repair our relationship. Would you want that? It's not a trick question. Would you want that? Of course you would. So why not give that to someone else? That's my encouragement to you. If you would feel encouraged, if it would breathe life into your life, if someone came and did that to you, you have the power to do that for someone else. Because again, as we've already established, you have harmed someone else. The other encouraging thing beyond the interpersonal relationships that you have, the other encouraging thing is that God has committed to love you through Jesus Christ, despite your actions. Besides trusting him, you have to trust him, you have to give your life to him. He is committed to forgiving you, 
to give me life here and now and throughout eternity. He's already committed that. You have nothing else to lose. But you have everything to gain in your relationship with God if you do these things. If you say, God, I agree with you on what I have done wrong. My heart hurts that I have done that to you. And you're about to say, will you forgive me? And he interrupts you in the sentences, I already have. Congratulations. The encouraging part about repentance, especially with God, he forgives you in advance, but he asks you to turn away from sin and to follow him. So to end our time together today, let's talk about this week's prayer. It's pretty short, but I hope it's helpful. God, I have wronged you and the people in my life. Help me feel the weight of that. Don't ignore it. You need to feel the weight. But also realize, help me know that you carry all of my burdens. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. The exact words from Jesus when he said, follow me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Your grace pushes me towards repentance. It's not from you. You are not the reason you want to repent. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Thank you for being close to me, even when I was or am not close to you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this challenging scripture. Man, no one wants to admit that they're wrong. We would love to think that we'd make right choices and everyone around us likes us and we don't harm anyone. But Lord, admitting, confessing, and feeling sorrowful and heartfelt guilt is the beginning of salvaging, going forward in, rekindling, reconciling, and improving our relationships, not only with people, but with you. Lord, but it takes great courage. Give us your Holy Spirit for those of us who believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. Or send people to those who do not yet believe in Jesus to encourage them to do this. You know, repentance repairs marriages, relationships with their kids, and ultimately, it engages in a relationship with you where you have already forgiven us through your son, Jesus Christ, for those who believe in him. Lord, encourage us to pick up the phone or a note card or a text or to see someone in person and look them in the eye and say, I've harmed you. I want to own that and I want to be better for you. Lord, thank you so much for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Went over a little today. Sorry about that. You can take it up with my boss. Um, next week, all eyes look to you. We're going to end this series called uh, He Hears Us. And so we hope you'll come next week. All eyes look to you. We're also going to be doing communion next week. You won't want to miss that. We'll do it in a, in a fun way. Thank you so much for being here. Already blessed in Christ. Have a great Sunday. See you later. <laughs>